Hello everyone and welcome to Volume 4, Issue 194 of Cain and Rinse. Uh, this time we'll be covering Thomas Was Alone, but before we get to that, play along with Kane and Rince Volume 4. Uh, soon we'll be covering games such as Comic Zone, Freeze, Halo 4, Oddworld, Abe's Odyssey, and the new Fancy Shiny Edition, New and Tasty, and Just Cause 2. Head to canerince.com for the full schedule, the blog and links to our forum, Facebook page and YouTube channel. Check out our shop where you can support the podcast, pick up cool canerince t-shirts and all sorts of other stuff. We also have another podcast, Sound of Play, where we play various bits of video game music that we love. Please check that out. And also... uh, really helps us if you review and rate us on iTunes or whatever service you use to listen to your podcasts. Okay, so joining me, Joshua Garrity, in this issue is Tony Atkins. Hello. And Ryan Heyman. Ryan was fully aware that he could not do this alone. Joshua hoped he'd never have to. (laughs) Very funny. Um... Right, so we're talking about uh, Thomas Was Alone. Uh, The developer of this game was Mike Biffle, who actually left Bossa Studios to uh, develop this game um, after working on it for a while. Um, uh, It was published by Mike Biffle himself on PC and uh, OS X, um, but uh, it was uh, published by Curve Studios and Bossa Studios on other platforms. So Curve Studios handled the console releases, and uh, Bossa, uh, Bossa Studios handled the iOS and Android releases. Uh, on composing duty, um, we actually interviewed uh, David Housden on uh, Sound of Play. Um, it, it was uh, issue 23 of Sound of Play. Uh, it's worth going to listen to that. Uh, it was a great little interview a great uh, insight into the making of uh, music and games and the narration was by Danny Wallace um, it was released on various uh, platforms uh, in 2012 it made its way to PC um, and then April of 2013 it made its way to PS3 and PS Vita then Linux later that year, uh, and then iOS in 2014, Android in 2014, uh, Xbox One, and uh, and then finally PS4 and Wii U in November 2014. So... Um, Let's just go straight into our histories with the game and uh, maybe kind of set up how we were uh, feeling about the game, what we what we thought of uh, early trailers and what have you. Let's start with Tony. I'm a relative newcomer to the game, actually. I played it on the Xbox One platform. Um, not that wasn't I wasn't aware of what the game was long before I actually got around to playing it. Um, I remember this this doing the rounds on a, quite a few podcasts um, around the time um, everyone talking about you know the simplicity of it uh, yet you know the the inherent depth of the the characters etc and being really intrigued by that the whole thing but um, just as many games you know you, you 
you, they sound brilliant, but you did, they just ne- somehow never end up in your playlist. Um, but it was one I was always, you know, wanting to get round to. And as you've just re- read that massive list of platforms that it, it's it's graced its uh, presence on, you know, there's actually you know not many platforms left that it, it hasn't actually got to. So the ability to do so is is you know fairly numerous. So finally took the plunge on the brand new shiny consoles. Lack of stuff to play at that point. I was like, well, yes, let's. It was cheap. Let's finally do this. So, um, I think I completed it about two months ago. There or thereabouts. Um, so yeah, knowledge was was quite a lot of it. Um, it had done that whole curve of I'd hear heard people talk about it, you know, discuss it, like it, loathe it, and then you know settle somewhere in between about where I got to play it. I think. So yeah, um, I I first heard about Thomas was alone at a. BAFTA Games panel mm. about um, storytelling in games. And this was before uh, Thomas Was Alone was ready for release. Uh, Mike Biffle was just, you know, doing the rounds, trying to get, um, you know, get attention. Yeah. yeah, and um, yeah, he he was invited to be part of this panel about narrative in games. And, and it was very interesting. It was quite a while ago now, so I don't don't ask me for details <laughs> but um i i was struck by um because he showed b- a bit of gameplay in it by the minimalist art style and um that kind of intrigued me and he, he just the way mike biffle talked about using interactivity as a way of um you know as a way of storytelling rather than just relying on uh, borrow techniques like cutscenes and what have you, using the way these blocks interact with each other to to convey uh, relationships and uh, and to convey plot. Um, but then it just kind of disappeared from my radar for a bit until uh, like every podcast I could think <laughs> of started talking about it, which is the way of things with these types of games, like the the smaller games. It's they're you know word of mouth is everything to these kind of games, and um, yeah, I I was I was interested in checking it out. It never turned out. It wasn't it wasn't one that I uh, picked up day one. It was very much a I think it was a humble bundle uh, uh, deal for me in the end. Um, uh yeah i i think i picked it up in a humble bundle and uh and eventually got round to playing it ryan not remembering how i picked this one up i think i had it pretty early on it might have even been on dusara before it came to steam but i i do remember getting it from the humble bundle but i don't think that was my first copy of it but i may have waited until that point to actually like get around to playing it but uh yeah i think i was fairly early on with this one it's funny, I just checked. I do actually own a copy on Steam. So I'm going to guess I also picked up the Humble Bundle at some point. Yeah. <laughs> You, the, the thing with humble uh, humble bundles is that you go through so many of them that mm-hmm. you forget <laughs> what games you got on them and what you didn't. Um, yeah, so let's move on to just the kind of general first impressions of the game. What we what we thought of it uh, first loading up and having a look at the art style and the music and uh, just the general feel of play. Uh, Ryan, I just I kind of want you to lay out kind of what the basics of the game are for somebody just starting to play it. Sure, sure. Um, it is a 2D platformer. Um, it's a fairly minimalist art style. It's uh, mostly rectangles on top of of black surfaces that represent the platforms that you can jump on up against a uh, mostly a 
single color or a gradient colored background. But, you know, that, that does it a little bit of disservice because there is a little bit more going on. There's some nice lighting and shadow effects and water and, and this and that that does kind of mix up the... And so pure minimalism um, isn't necessarily all that apt a description, but it, it's a good starting point. At yeah. least um, you play as these little squares and rectangles and uh, basically platform around this world while a a voice narrates a story about them. And so there's not a lot going on on screen, but between, um, I guess, the story being told and the kinetic experience of actually playing the game, um, they, they do intermesh nicely, and uh, and you end up learning this story about these uh, these squares trying to ascend towards a fountain of knowledge. I think the thing that I, I was really struck with in terms of um, art direction uh, was the use of lighting in the game. Mm-hmm. Because the actual, the colours and, and, you know, the environments are just blocks and uh, and they're very simple. But um, I, I liked how everything cast a shadow and mm. the, the shadows would move with the characters and and so forth. Because it, it, it could have so... It could have so easily just been these blocks moving about and uh and you know nothing else but just that little touch of uh the light moving with the characters and the shadows moving with the characters added a little bit of personality that i think aided yeah, I, the game I, I think you know it, it could have been very easy to go almost too retro with it you know making it yeah. very much like an 8-bit like oh this is a, a puzzler of your childhood but they yeah. added a, a layer of story and complexity to it that you know takes as gamers have evolved it's beyond that i think actually um taken on its own regard i think it's actually quite a stunning looking game i, I think it's, yeah, it's yeah yeah it you know it's uh, it has an art design to it it's not just uh, colored blocks you know the color blocks have a little bit of movement to them so they're not just a, a standard you know block that is just there when they when they jump there's a little bit of bend in the block as in to mm, suggest yeah, that yeah. there is a little bit of kinetic energy that goes with it um, yeah you do have the you know the contrasting dark backgrounds against these very colorful blocks um and equally like you say the, the you know the shadowing system of feeling like you're progressing through time and almost like a through a day cycle within the, the computer platform is very much present there and actually um there's a really interesting director's commentary that can be found on this game um i love it when developers or studios do this yeah. and um you know mike biffle talks about you know some of the choices they make some of the um interaction with the player how the light guides them around certain areas that you you know when you're just playing i guess as a seasoned game player you don't even pick up anymore because they're just there but actually there's some very technical stuff all happening in the background a la you know half life and it's it's lighting above doors etc there's very much present in this game so I, i actually do think it's a beautiful game to look at even in its simplicity i think my one major criticism though is i think there's not enough variety as the game progresses yeah i think i was very impressed with the appearance initially for the first you know set of levels but as you you know progress through the game and especially towards the end i started to tire of the aesthetic and it just wasn't exciting me anymore um and maybe that's a shallow thing on my part. Maybe that's, you know, being a, a little bit too mean. Maybe there was a purpose to this consistent appearance that I'm uh, I'm not seeing. But 
I I like I like it when games try to change things up as as they progress, and I think there are examples of um, platformers that do this mm-hmm. very well, where they really radically change um, the aesthetic while while still keep, like um the the example I'm really thinking of here is Fez, where it has yeah, areas yeah. that just have a an aesthetic theme and every time you're introduced to a new one it's really impressive whereas this is just the same all the way through and it just allows you to get bored of it after a while which is a real shame i think there's foundations in the story um why that may be the case so also yeah this is not a particularly long game um i think you know the game has a story to tell it doesn't hang about um we'll talk about the gameplay essentially but you know the gameplay isn't challenging um you know it's a couple of evenings you know messing around with it and and you'll see it through to completion um there's certainly story elements that could play into why why the background area doesn't change so much i mean you are essentially you know in a computer system and in in many respects you're being quarantined away from the mainframe of the system but it it would have been interesting i I think actually the dlc levels a bit later on after that uh that aren't necessarily linked with the main game there is some complexity and variety in there that isn't exist within the main game so i think you know lessons learned maybe but um yeah i I think you are right josh that towards the end i I did feel like you know they they could have shaken it up even if it meant maybe the storyline had to take a a bit of a back step i feel like if this game had been released in 2015 it might be even more visually minimalist than it is uh, in its current form as kind of the iOS generation has progressed and made that look a lot more popular with games like Hundreds mm. and Black. Um, although I do like, there are some, um, I, I think the way that it does kind of mix up the aesthetic um, later on into the game is that it, it gives more kind of like uh, canted levels, kind of levels that kind of sit on a diagonal instead of being completely yeah. flat surfaces, which is a really nice look. And it doesn't really change the way that the game plays too much. It just... Uh, just makes everything feel a little off, especially when you're dealing with a digital environment where everything is supposed to be a square. Everything is supposed to be very uniform. I think I would be more forgiving of the the aesthetic being... Uh, the aesthetic kind of just getting a bit dull for me later on if I found the uh, the platforming and puzzle solving really engaging and really challenging, mm. um, but I, I have to be honest. Like I, I kind of soared through this game at a, a fair pace, and I didn't really struggle with any of the puzzles at any point. Um, and I, I completely understand that. I like it's not really the focus of this game. This is not trying to be you know, a super meat boy or something like that, where it's really trying to push you to your limits in terms of level design and what have you. What it's really trying to do, and I'm, I'm sure we're going to get onto that in into a minute, is using that uh, level design and interactivity to create relationships between these blocks and relationships between all these characters that you meet. Um, it, and that, yeah, go on, sorry. No, 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 it, it, interestingly... I think actually this this game could have been more fiendish than you'd actually believe. Um, yeah. If you if you look at the way the levels are designed and yeah, you know, the the overall tone of this game is that I think the majority of people who play this game would see it through to completion. There are a couple of tricky sections in platforms. 
Um, right. Okay. And there, uh, there's a checkpoint system that actually allows you to, you know, just not particularly lose much progression and just move forward. Mm. Um, listening to Mike Biffle talk about this game, actually, that wasn't how this game was laid out. If you look at these, this game, it's it's actually quite similar to Super Meat Boy in a regard. Obviously, there's no spinning blazer section, but the levels are actually really, really short. It doesn't take particularly long to progress yeah. from the very start to the very end. But up until um, two weeks until release, there was actually no checkpoint system in this game. Um, so all the levels were designed that once you died, you went back to the start, you repeated again. Um, and this went through countless playtesting, and uh, all the feedback Mike Biffle got was there needs to be some sort of crutch to fall back on. Um, yeah. And actually playing through the game and, and knowing that knowledge, I think the first half of the game most people would get through and not require any kind of checkpoint system to help yeah. them. But actually, the back half of that game, you do actually fall back on the checkpoint system quite a few times. There's very few levels right at the back end of the game where you think, okay, I just started that and got through to the end. There'll be little jumps that you didn't make. Um, and if you then look at that and you'll be you know, looking at going back to the very start of the level, I think that would have been a different type of game. And I think it was a different type of game. And all the feedback you received from people was, I kind of just want to see the story because this is the best element <laughs> of the game and you're preventing yeah. me and it was upsetting pretty much all the playtesters and it's a it's a, one of those things where you could look at it and go well playtesters generally ruin games and i think listening to mike biffle saying it broke his heart to in the end to release this game with checkpoints in because that wasn't his original vision his original vision was to make a super meat boy light esque um type game but actually he realised when he was receiving all the feedback, that's not what people wanted from this game. And actually, as an auteur, he needed to take a step back and refocus yeah. what this game was about. And, you know, he fell back on the checkpoint system. So in his own regards, he kind of broke the game with the checkpoint system because he realised in the end they put too many in, etc., etc., and it became no challenge. But actually, the game was never really about the challenge in the first place. It was about the story being told. I, I think for me, it's... It's it's less about challenge, really. To be honest, um, if this game could be as easy as it is with the checkpoints and everything, what I I think what's missing for me is just any kind of excitement or thrill from completing these levels. Yeah, there just there isn't that. Like even like I, I used I you know I jumped straight to Super Meat Boy because that's yeah it's yeah I it's always a benchmark, right? do, I I always yeah. do that. But there are examples of much much easier platformers um like Rayman Legends for example that have these thrilling moments like uh, like the musical levels in uh, in Rayman Legend. Now they they're not difficult, they're not particularly hard, but you feel engaged with what's going on like the music and then the action that's going on on screen is so in sync that it, it you can't help but engage you but whereas here i just felt like i was going through you know going through the motions a lot of the time um it was exciting every time i was introduced to a new character and a new ability and you know being able to play about with those new abilities for the and you know the first levels that they were introduced for but once you get used to everyone and you kind of know what they all have to do you kind of just go oh, right okay we'll put Laura here and then we'll get Chris to jump on Laura and then it it just it wasn't it wasn't particularly exciting or fun it 
but it wasn't horrible either. That, that's where I, you know, this is where I have difficulty with this game because I don't feel like any of my criticisms are really criticisms. I'm just saying there's not enough of what I'm looking for, and maybe that's not fair uh, because that, you know, maybe the experience I'm after is not what Mike Biffle was trying to create. But I, I just there's something special that's missing for me in all of these, you know, Did all you play of these the levels. DLC stuff at all? Um, I, I have to be honest. No, I didn't play the DLC. Yeah, it, it's it's strange that what you're asking for is there's a, a I think there's maybe ten levels or so. It, it's not massive, but you know, it exists. Um, the game, you know, they took some feedback, and you know, those ten levels, are, as I would class it, as you know, the challenging levels. It's the it's the stuff that you're asking for, and it's a, a glimpse of how hard the game could be with the character sets. Um, I don't think, you know, it it's fine, but I that's not what I I eventually came and took away from this game. And I think if I had yeah. a game full of what those DLC levels were presenting, I think maybe I'd have a slightly different. Um, opinion on the game because I wouldn't have been so engrossed with what uh, its its narrative arc was trying to tell me. Some of the lo- um, some of the challenge in the later game comes from uh, I want to say kind of like uninteresting design choices. Uh, there's <laughs> a couple instances I'm thinking of in particular that are like a series of uh, of very narrow platforms with gaps in between all of them, and it's like thirteen in a row. And it's like, there's nothing fun about trying to make those jumps. And, you know, they they do checkpoint them. But I can imagine without it, like, that's not necessarily a Meat Boy-like challenge. That's just kind of get lucky, you know, however many four or five times it takes you to cross that that section of the map. There's a couple of, uh, um, uh, of sections of actually kind of clever lateral thinking later in the game especially once you get james who has mm-hmm. um, kind of reverse um gravity inverted yeah. to thomas yeah and you have to use them as like stairs by kind of dangling them off the side of the platform so the other one can jump yeah. on the underside of them and and actually i think one of the best moments in the game is when uh, Thomas and James have to stand on top of each other and then skate on top of each other in the middle of the air as uh, you, yeah, know, you that can was good. kind of push the pair of them together by cycling between the two of them. Yeah, and so stuff like that is very clever, but yeah. it always kind of feels like the game isn't really made to do that. Or like I kind of feel like I'm breaking the rules in that point, which is probably what you're supposed to feel like. But at the same time, it's a little bit too easy to fall off of Thomas uh, or James when they're on top of each other or fall off the edge of the platform when you're trying to position yourself as a stair. Yeah. I think actually a lot of those features were quite last minute. It, it, you know, it was always fascinating to hear direct, yeah, directors talk about their work, whether it be films, music, whatever it may be, especially in games because it's a medium I'm more passionate about. Um, and there's a... I'm gonna call, he, he calls it the football, but it's like a... Uh, I don't know. It's not a triangle. It's like a quadrant. It's a... Uh, it's like the he's called it the football level. You bounce this thing around the platforms to get it into areas to essentially open gates. And once again, this was an addition that he just felt like he needed a bit of variety towards the back end level. And decided, I think it was like four days before ship date, they would add this just random element to the game because it felt a little bit lacking in the back half of the corner. Caused a whole load of bugs, but still left it in. Um, it's it's stuff like that. I I do feel like maybe this had a uh, a production line that was. 
you know, I think developers always want more time. But in the case of an indie developer where they, they do have a hard date essentially to hit and it costs, you know, they put their own finances into it. I think probably in this case he wanted more but ended up with less purely down to time, money, etc. Um, but I don't always think, you know, the, the old saying less is more. And I think maybe in in this instance I'm I'm happy enough to say that I think the gameplay is varied enough to support the narrative that I think ultimately it was trying to tell um, hmm. but I'd be fascinated to see when uh, Thomas was alone too if if that story heart needed to continue at all um, and I think you'd probably see a quite a, a deep mixture of what we're saying here just you know slightly deeper and more engaging uh, puzzle design um, and maybe you know, a little bit more controlled storytelling so let's let's you know go go into that story um that we've been hinting at um so the 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 setup of the game is you start out with thomas he is alone and uh, he's a small orange rect- rectangle and he has a f- fairly basic jump uh for uh you know a platformer character and um you kind of follow him as he meets all of these crazy characters like chris uh, who's a tiny block who can't jump very far and is very self-conscious about that <laughs> and is constantly commenting on how everyone else can jump uh, jump better than him and, he, and he's you know he he's worthless. giving Thomas yeah. yeah he feels worthless and um, then you have John who's a big long re- yellow rectangle and he's a bit you know he's a bit arrogant about that fact but he but the thing about John is that he still wants to help everyone so he's not like entirely uh, unlikable um, and then you have Claire who has the superpower to float on water. Claire has one of the best introductions of mm-hmm. the characters in this. Um, yeah, that's a good idea. Uh, yeah. I, I just... Because you don't know what's going to happen at that point, um, and and the game has done a pretty good job of teaching you that water is, you know, a hazard. Um, it, it was a bit... You know, it was quite a pleasant surprise when she just floated. And immediately, like, the mechanical possibilities of, you know, Claire uh, in uh, later situations come flooding to you. And, uh, and then you have Laura, who's, uh, like, a long... Uh, horizontal uh, rectangle who can't jump, barely jumps, but um, she's ba- she's basically a trampoline, and because she allows um, characters to jump higher, Chris basically falls in love with her because uh, she allows him to be the best that he can be. Uh, but Laura's kind of like are oh, worried that they're just going to use her and discard her. And uh, then you get, as you we've mentioned already, you got James, who has like the reverse gravity ability. He basically behaves exactly like Thomas, except he falls upwards instead of downwards. And then finally, you have uh, Sarah, who who's the best jumper. She can double jump, and she believes she's the queen of everything. She and she knows the power. She has power of knowledge. She has, yeah, <laughs> she has power over everyone. Um, so, how do you guys feel about the way? Um, the game conveys these relationships between all these characters, and more importantly, how it leverages interactivity in a unique way in order to convey those relationships. I really love that it makes us kind of use each of these shapes for its uh, for its talent, 
And so we do really feel like when we switch to John and we're able to just like jump over gaps like nobody's business, like that does feel good and you do feel powerful and you do feel like, okay, I'll let the little guys jump on my head to give them a little bit of a heads up or whatever. And uh, and Claire like really does feel like a supremely useful member of the team. And so it does a really good job of like putting us in, I don't want to say the shoes, but uh, into the... Um, into these characters and, and make us feel what they're feeling. Yeah. I'm going to get this word out there because I've heard this say said time and time again about this game. Um, the word is pretentious. We all know what it is and we all don't really care actually on certainly on Kane and Rince, whether it has any context to what we're talking about anyway, but it is a word that's been used. Um, I, th- you know, I, I think as a games medium, um, and this is a sweeping statement, so don't take this for everything. I think, you know, in many respects we've become, you know, lost a little bit in our way of trying to chase down, you know, photorealism, etc. Every game, you know, it looks utterly a, a crazy amazing now. And, uh, you know, quite often we just almost glance over it. We, you know, it's almost just goes one in, out into your eye and out the other. And it, it you know, what this does, it, it pulls it back a bit. You know, we've already mentioned minimalist and this plays that in its entirety. It, it strips down all the things that we talk about gaming now. You could argue something like Dear Esther goes one step further, but, you know, this this has a, a story that it wishes to tell and it and it conveys that to the, the player. And I think in a really simplistic but also elegant way, you know, you could argue, I mean, just listening to you, Josh, talk about what essentially are just, you know, rudimentary shapes and yeah. having a slight kind of joyous tone to the back half of your voice about how, you know, Chris is slightly self-conscious because he doesn't really have a jump, much of a jump. Yeah, essentially what you are talking about is just a tiny square that just slightly doesn't jump higher than the others. You you take away the storytelling around that and this would really just be a platformer where it'd be like, well, there wasn't really anything to it. This this is just a platformer of my own. And that does play into some of the stuff we we were saying earlier. It, It is a rudimentary platformer and without these character and story arcs, it certainly would feel not particularly engaging, but yeah, and this is a big but for me. I think they, you know, Mike Biffle did a really good job with the script of this. Um, some people think it is pretentious for sure. I think it's it's eloquently done. Um, the, the, the the it's interesting. So I I I I'm on record as saying that I hate the word pretentious, mm-hmm. regardless, because I think people use that word as a crutch for not owning the fact that they just don't like a game. Um, and uh, I, I, I just don't think it's a very useful useful word. It doesn't really say anything. It's just art game I didn't like is what it usually means yeah. when people use it. But um, I, I even in the true sense, you know, the true meaning of the word pretentious, I don't know if it really fits here because a lot of, you know, the storytelling here feels very much like a children's storybook or a or a Pixar film or something like that. It's not complex kind of storytelling here. It's very well-crafted, but very kind of simple character dynamics. Now, for video games, well-crafted, simple character dynamics is a world above the majority of uh, storytelling that's in this me- medium. And I-, I have to say, like, as you say, like, without this stuff, without the 
the dyna- you know the character character dynamics and the story that this game is trying to tell i i think this would be a very forgettable platformer uh, with it, um, it becomes this kind of interesting exploration and what you can do uh, by, you know, giving players control over, you know, characters, telling them their personality mm-hmm. and feeling it through mm-hmm. the gameplay, feeling the power of John, as Ryan said, and and feeling the weakness of Chris Um uh, and the the surprise at Claire's superpower, um, but not only that, but having the kind of weaknesses and strengths play off of all of these blocks, um, and which is you know that's how that's how character dynamics and and um, and character relationships work in uh, the best fiction is it's it's weaknesses and strengths kind of bouncing off of each other and in this game very literally bouncing off of each other um and it it, it was a joy to see that in in a game that's so simple in so many regards i think the the bigger point here to make as well is that if if I mean, on the face of it when you first meet any of these characters they they are very simplistic um, yeah. you know, they have to be because ultimately you are looking just at a square or rectangle, what it, whatever it may be, um, and they need to put a persona onto that that you know object. Um, and at the very start, I think they are. You know, um, Chris can jump really high, and he's a little bit of a dick because of that, and he can he lords it over everybody. But I think the important thing here is actually these characters have a story arc. They don't just yeah you know, yeah yeah. Um, John doesn't just stay as being a character that can jump high and being a bit of a dick because of that. He's a character yeah, that actually, as the game progresses, he realizes that he needs them. This is kind of still self-centered, self-centered, but he he, he needs them to be around so he can show his ability to them. Um, and the narrative plays into that. He you know he wants to show how great he is, and without these people then there wouldn't be an audience for him to demonstrate that. But then beyond that, as these, um, his essentially become his friends, start being taken away one by one as the game progresses, there's a sense of loss in his voice, a sense of, well, now I've actually found a place. It's, it wasn't about just showing off. It was about, towards the end, being my ability to help them along their way. And that's in a character yeah. that happens with pretty much every one of these people, or one of these mm. um uh, yeah, people was the right word here. You know, I'm, I'm going to put a a face to them. You know, um, Chris is small. He's tiny jump. He's self conscious, and Laura feels like you know people have always just used her in life because you know she's a um or oh, what is she? She's a uh, she's a trampoline. She's yeah. essentially yeah. So she runs at a slightly different plane. So she she's she can be used as a trampoline, and all her life people have been jumping on top of her. So she's really self conscious about herself and just almost kind of hates herself but because of that chris and, and laura you know they, they have a common ground that they, they start to share and you know uh, laura falls in love with chris and chris is too self-conscious to admit that to laura but there's a whole character out there about you know these two blobs falling in, in love with each other and essentially when they come to an uh, you know their their final climactic end there is a sense of well, they never really got together, uh, and they are computer AI programmers. I mean, there there is once again more to this story. We we need to talk about the fact that um, they're not just blobs in the environment that you're playing through. There is a a background uh, element to this about they are AI in a system, and yeah. they're essentially evolving through this system as you're progressing and playing. Um, 
with you know a, an interesting end. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree with what Tony said earlier that I think the script of this game is really good. Um, you know, it is really good at the moment-to-moment storytelling. But I think it's not great at the overall story construction. I think that some of the threads that have been set up throughout the game go uh, more or less unfulfilled. For example, yeah. um, Laura's story, like you had uh, just mentioned, I think is a bit flat. Like we're introduced to her not wanting to be seen because she's afraid that others will not accept what she um, views as a, uh, a special ability, almost like a deformity. Um, but that doesn't really end up having a lot to do with her story. Uh, she becomes more haunted by the pixel cloud is what ends up uh, kind of defining mm-hmm. her story going forward as um, you know, she causes her friends to be eaten and feels guilty about this. And that story's never really resolved. Like once everybody's eaten, Laura, uh, she comes back as far as like the platforming sections go, but we don't really get a, another insight into her head. Like that, that story is just kind of lopped off right there. And there's a few threads like that throughout the game that feel like they, uh, like they weren't entirely thought out beforehand. Like they don't have appropriate conclusions. And also mm. on the kind of on the writing level, um, say the script is really good with the, <laughs> with the exception of a few, abhorrent uh internet meme references that are terrible 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 yeah uh, they, they make an arrow in the knee joke and a cake is a lie joke and it's but like that, I, it's, uh, it's funny like i i agree on it's not the, funny no 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 in, in the point that he he you know he essentially what they're he um thomas is, is doing he he manages to find a portal to the internet and he has access to the internet for for 12 seconds and essentially he takes in all information on the internet and i think yeah it's a throwaway line the throwaway line is that you know he's learned something about lolcats uh the cake is a lion there's an arrow in the knee it is a throw in the line it's a bit dumb but it, it is kind of funny that the you know the entire thing he learned from the internet is ridiculous meme jokes that have uh, you know yeah. basically ruined the internet maybe <laughs> i i think for me it it, it... I get where you're coming from, but it doesn't really fit the tone of the rest of the game. It's a yeah. it's a real serious clash. For there, me. There's two or three sections as well where they break the fourth wall. Um, it talks about you know, yeah, he feels like he's being guided through these platforms um, that is getting you know harder and harder, and essentially just moving to the right, etc. Um, mm. Yeah, there's definitely some fourth wall breaking stuff, which. I, yeah, I'm not too sure it works within the context of the game, but yeah, it brought a smile to my face. I think I, uh, one of the big problems I had with the writing was that the characters seem to have an inconsistent fund of knowledge. Like, um, yeah. you know, Thomas seems puzzled by very basic concepts, but characters are frequently making references to real world events and people, as well as uh, and a more involved concepts that imply that they have, um, you know, real knowledge of a real individual. For example, like for somebody to feel alone, like he must have a concept of what togetherness is. And if he's truly coming to um, to awakening to his own consciousness at that point, he wouldn't really have this. And, you know, Claire uh, seems to know that water is dangerous. Otherwise, she wouldn't be afraid of it and be surprised when she can float. Uh, she knows what superheroes are and also knows the specific meaning of not only kryptonite, but knows about red kryptonite, which makes me think like what is thomas gaining from going to the internet where are they getting this information and like if the entire pursuit of the game 
is finding this fountain of knowledge. Like I, I need some sort of a baseline of what kind of knowledge do they have? How much more can they stand to grow? If they know about red kryptonite, then like who cares about arrow in the knee? Like it's interesting that the, the backstory is essentially that they're in a computer program. I can't remember mm-hmm. what the company's called, isn't it? After, after something life, uh, artificial Actually, life yeah. solutions. Yeah, artificial life yeah. solutions have this program that is running, and essentially Thomas and the crew that we meet at the very start are actually just glitches in the system. Um, you know, the the actual AI they're creating is outside of this, and um, the what they call the splitter, the the thing that comes across and actually takes them out of the environment, is actually just a computer program that's being run through to quarantine them because they're messing up the environment you're playing it in. So these are just glitches and bugs that shouldn't actually happen inside the bigger environment that they're in. And essentially, the back end of the game, you get put into quarantine. And uh, hence why the game slowly gets harder and harder, because the program, the quarantine program, essentially is there to distract these these pieces of AI from that not actually... Um, causing havoc within the main system so the idea is it becomes harder and harder and that you know you're spending more and more time and not interfering with the the mainframe essentially but Hmm. the overarching story arc is actually the ai that they take out of the the thing with the splitter and put into quarantine because they're all together and have had that story arc have had that uh, togetherness realize actually what it is to be uh, you know, essentially a conscience, um, and that's when they make their the ultimate sacrifice, isn't it? So Thomas realizes that they actually need to be uh, taken and um, kind of engulfed into the actual mainframe of the machine for others to start using the powers and the knowledge that they've used. Hence, why we get the second half of the game, the new characters that come through, and the ability within the environment to start using, um, uh, you know, the the ability to go on water from. Uh, Laura, Accenture, because they're, they've been, been re-embedded mm. into the environment. So, you know, the sacrifice of the, 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 the characters that we've been playing with and actually kind of, you know, kind of fallen in love with a little bit. Um, it, it feels, I know when I first played through it, I felt quite, you know, underwhelmed by the, the, the conclusion of the story because I felt that the, the characters that I've grown to like have been taken away from me and I got these other set of grey blobs that you know who are they what do i care like there is the story arcs of them of they're kind of uninteresting but essentially they they're the ones that become sentient thanks to the fact that um you know the characters that you do like have actually you know, sacrificed them to themselves to the machine which is interesting because a lot of the, I've, I've played this game um three times now um a lot of that stuff i never picked up on my my first playthrough i, I was kind of more focused on just you know do puzzles See, see the end of this and actually going back and playing through I think about three quarters of the game up until that second split again then going back and listening to Mike Biffle's commentary and kind of you know talking about what he was after and and seeing some of the story arc and the story beats that he was pushing in there is is really interesting because I think unless you study this game I think a lot of that stuff can easily you know, bypass the player, and I, I'm not sure, sure that whether that's good development or whether that's bad development, or wanting people just to maybe dig a little bit, little bit deeper and not just see it on the surface. I don't know how whether that stuff actually came across to you guys. The way that I understood the story, and this might be a wrong interpretation, was that um, kind of like the Magic Circle, another game that recently came out, that uh, Thomas and his friends were AI developed for a a game, or at least put into a game type environment. And it was kind of like a 
um, like they were experiencing the invisible hand of the creator, kind of uh, commenting on that um, that tension that real players feel in that they feel like they're being guided through something. But, um, you know, it's not necessarily a naturalistic environment, which if this wasn't the direction that uh, that Mr. Bithel wanted this to go into, then it was entirely me just misreading it. But I think that, um, you know, we, we've seen a few kind of explorations of um, kind of that more meta space in in video game design and that conversation, that uh, conversation between the player and the creator and I think that's a kind of an interesting way to read it as well. I, for me, narratively, um, I, I kind of agree with everything you guys have said, but um, I, I do have real issues with the back half of this game um, after the uh, the sacrifice because I think if if you really wanted this to be a satisfying kind of story, you'd end it at the sacrifice, which I know is a bit ridiculous considering the length of this game. Um, to end it there would, you know, make it like just over a, like just over two hours or something like that. Um, but just narratively, I think that would have been more satisfying to me to have like this ending of we've got to empower the rest of the AI. We've got to free them from their shackles, make the sacrifice and then just roll credits and let, you know, the imagination of the player take over from there. Um, And yeah, it's a mistake I see in a lot of movies as well. It's not just a a video game thing. Um, The example I I can think of is uh, Source Code. That's a movie that really should have ended like 15 minutes before it did. Um, uh, And uh, yeah, I just just wish that um, the back half of this game was more interesting as well. Just none of the... None of the new characters like Gray, Joe, Sam, Paul, Team Jump, Benjamin, and and all that lot. Like none of them are as interesting as the core group that we've gotten to know, and none of them are as fleshed out as the core group we've gotten to know. Um, arguably, you could, I mean, you could make the argument that the game gets more mechanically interesting with the ability to change powers and stuff like that. But at that point, like. I was done with the story and at that point I was willing the game to finish. I just I was just going through the motions and um I was kind of disappointed that um you know my biffle didn't have the confidence to just end with uh with amb- ambiguity. Well, the thing is I don't think that the sacrifice was um I guess appropriately explained up until the point at which it happened. Like once I started right, yeah. um using these little gray blocks and going through these portals that absorb the powers of at least a couple of the, um, of the AIs. I don't know why they all had to die. It seemed like only two of them were like useful, but, um, (laughs) it was, uh, I, I don't think that, yeah, if the game had just ended at the moment of the sacrifice, I wouldn't have understood what happened and why it was important. Yeah. I think my my retort to that would be then then you should have made a better job of yeah, yeah, uh, explaining that stuff before that happens. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I get why like after the sacrifice these events take place because yeah, you're you're absolutely correct. If it just ended there, it would have been very unsatisfying. Left open to interpretation but, for sure. 
Yeah, but just from a storytelling kind of pacing prospect, it's just really awkward, yeah, I agree. and uh, it doesn't it doesn't have the satisfying climax that um, that it could have had if it 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 you know it had fleshed out what's happening at the, at that point a bit more before it happens, and then just ended there. I think some of that is is probably down to the uh, David Housen's uh, music as well. Because he does yeah. such a good job, uh, you know, conveying emotion from essentially yeah, yeah. you know blobs and squares, um, and I, I can remember the sacrifice in particular. It's a it's a fantastic piece of music that really builds up as you're playing through the game into this massive concentro uh, to a point where you just yeah I've played countless games and seen countless films where you know the music he portrays there is exactly that. It's meant to put your you know the your hair's on end. It's meant to go. Oh, you know, I, I've, I feel like I've eclipsed to some higher place, and all of a sudden, you know, the screen goes white, and then, you know, I can certainly see Josh where you're talking about. You know, that, that from there, even if you didn't entirely understand, there's so many, you know, emotions kicking around about. But that was a really interesting game. Mm-hmm. I want to kind of dig further. The music is there, and then kind of just breaks. The light breaks. And you're presented with uh, you know a few characters which aren't as charming. Um, I mean, one's called Grey. It's <laughs> it's there within yeah, yeah, within yeah. the name. The, the, the story arc of those they're interesting enough. You, is it? I think it's Grey's the one that essentially realizes that he could become an AI outside of the system um, and sees the you know the true power of of what that means. So he goes a little bit stir, you know, stir crazy and tr- you know basically his friends he he disregards them and just kicks them to one side and it's for them to kind of use all the powers that everyone else has given to them to if I remember correctly they uh, they find a, a rogue um splitter that's not been uh, you know that shouldn't be in that side of the system and and eventually comes and and takes gray before he can actually ascend and the two good guys of the story do actually get out and uh, you know it's still fairly ambiguous what they're going to do we see a white screen uh, you know what does this ai mean but the it's interesting the the story that is you know portrayed through both Dennis Wallace's commentary over the game, which yeah we could have a, a long conversation about whether we like or not. But before we get there, um, there's a lot of text to be read. You know sometimes you know I think it would be a bit overwhelming to hear Daniel Wallace you know talk about every single smaller minutiae aspect. Um, but there's even sections where that you know, you've got the computer. Essentially, the, the the scientists from the artificial intelligence lab that leave comments about uh, after kind of the, the chapter sections about how you know, you know um, Thomas became sent, seems to become more sentient or become more emotional once you know, he had access to the network, or um, essentially that when they realised what was happening within the system, they evacuated the whole um facilities lab because they they were unsure what was actually going to happen within the the computer and and what would be the result uh you know of the ai actually forming into something of a, a sentient ai so it's interesting to to kind of have that further reading of okay so what did happen once they got to that point where the screen goes white did they somehow leave it or somehow infect into other systems and you know was was this skynet who knows but um it's a uh, it's for for such a small kind of I don't know non-imposing game at the very start. I think it it, it does deliver quite a, a a heavy punch narratively towards the back end of it. That it, it left me thinking. I didn't, I never went into it thinking that there was going to be 
too much more to it than an interesting platformer with a Danny, Danny Wallace voiceover that I'd heard on the internet and came, came away wanting to play it a further two more times and uh, to, to dig a little deeper, to listen to a little deeper, etc. Which yeah, I, I, I personally think is a goal well, well achieved from a you know, Dave Pumzant uh, developer or director. Now, this is definitely a divisive part of the game. Um, I think it is necessary uh, to have a form of narration in this game because otherwise, as we've said before, it's just a kind of mediocre platformer with blocks. Otherwise, you you need that narration to uh, create character. Uh, the execution is kind of what's really up for debate here, and a lot of people don't like Danny Wallace's voice. <laughs> full stop. Um, now, like speaking personally, I find the condescension towards the beginning of the game really infuriating. Um, towards the mid latter half of the game, I, I I didn't have so much of a a problem with his narration because so much of it was focused on the characters in a fort by that point. But kind of like the the fourth wall breaking and the acknowledgement that oh maybe this is designed by some kind of developer <laughs> in the outset that I just found that really condescending and um, yeah I I wasn't a fan early on. What what are, what are your guys' takes? I think that. Um... It came out a year after The Stanley Parable, which this one really kind of evoked memories of. And so given how long these types of especially uh, mostly single man projects take, it was probably in development at the same time and probably wasn't directly, you know, inspired by The Stanley Parable. But uh, it it is kind of an uncomfortable comparison if you put them side by side like that, because I think essentially uh, they're both doing the same thing. And I think The Stanley Parable does it a bit better than Thomas was alone does, but I, I didn't really have a problem with uh, with the way that the narration was delivered. Um, I guess the only little uh, the only little complaint that I would have is that um, that sometimes the narration cuts off if you go through the level too quickly. Yeah, and generally, yeah, I like yeah. um, designers to be aware of how long things take, and you know, pad out the level with a little bit more. Um, uh, with a little bit more just filler space if it has to be the case to make sure that we don't cut off the narration early, especially because sometimes you'll get a like a surprise narration like right at the very last second of the level. And if you're not, you know, just inching along waiting for these things, then you could miss it entirely. He, he um, Mike was fully aware of that as well. Uh, in the commentary, he, he actually... Um certainly in, in the early stages of the game where it's entirely possible to complete the first sections of levels almost within you know 10 seconds it seems yeah um he couldn't find a way to get over it other than making a restrictive door or something you know the door wouldn't open until the the voiceover but then that that would be yeah. maybe unfair against the people that just kind of want to to push through and enjoy the game um there's two or three scenes in the game where he felt the story was entirely important so the way he describes it is you can do that. Um, you can push through and lose a certain narrative, but the narrative that you lose isn't overly important to the core story. Whenever mm. there's a, an important core story beat that he wishes to tell you, there is things that actually prevent you from 
pushing through. Not that the player will, will know that or understand that, um, but he will add an extra block or an extra layer or whatever it may be to prevent the player from actually progressing through because he found that was one of the things from playtesting that people would just push through, the story would be missed. Um, considerations for sure. I agree. I did. There was a few times where I was, you know, I was, in, I was in, interested in the story, so quite often I'd find myself rushing through a level get to the door and then just sit there and wait for the uh the story to to pan over or read the story that was on the screen uh, and not let the commentary finish before i'd um actually push through uh i the performance i i'm always a bit like this with um with voiceover performances because i understand why they exist and, and quite often i find myself if there is subtitles on the screen um if the voiceover isn't engaging enough just reading the text and and pushing through i do this a lot in like rpgs or wherever it may be just you know the incidental characters be talking to me on screen and just terrible voiceover and you don't care and you're just you know you're trying to get your quest or whatever it may be i can read faster than they can talk and push through but i have to say i i liked dennis wallace's um portrayal of this i think there was a there's that kind of stephen fry charm to it and Equally, I think you know Little Big Planet. He can annoy people as well with the way that 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 is presented. Yeah. So I'm not sure there's you know that a one tonal voice that fits everybody um, that would be willing to just go. Oh yeah, that makes this game easy. And I I, I kind of like the slightly uh, what's the word? I guess fantasy element of his voice. That's probably not the right. But you know this charming. I think it's charming. It's like and, a children's book. Yeah. Yeah, um, whimsical. There we go. The whimsical nature of his his voice. I think it works sometimes when I think yeah, they they could have been a more higher impact of, of some of the writing. But I think some of the right, a lot of the writing is whimsical anyway. And I so I think he was a good choice for it. But a bit like um, was it Whitley Whiteley Whiteley in um, Whitley, Whitley in Portal Two? Like, I I like Stephen Merchant's portrayal of, of Whitley, but I know a lot of people it completely turned them off. So. Yeah, I you know to me it, it, he made that character there, and I, I you know here I think it's just as interesting. I think Wheatley worked for me in a way that Danny Wallace's performance here doesn't, because Wheatley is meant to be a character that you kind of look at and think he's pathetic <laughs> and and dumb and stupid. So at any time he's just being an idiot, it's kind of on purpose. Whereas, uh, not that, sorry, I that sounded like I was implying that the narration can, sounds I idiotic at points. I can equally but, come back to you here and say that he had one character art to portray, where Danny Wallace here has a whole host of characters to, to get across. And I think, you know, well, I think there's some brilliant voice actors there that can change their voice around, but he doesn't. He kind of sticks to his one Danny Wallace tone to represent I, everybody. Yeah. I don't think I'm after that. I don't think I'm after, you know, that kind of, um, you know, audio novel kind of approach <laughs> where the where the narrator changes their voice for each character. I think ultimately, and this is, you know, purely a subjective thing, I'm just not a fan of the stylistic choice. Mm. And and you mentioned the Stephen Fry in uh, Little Big Planet. I'm really not a fan of that uh, style of narration either, uh, even though I, I do actually like Stephen Fry. Um, in, in the Little Big Planet games, I, I, I really find that condescending and a little bit irritating. Well. 
Yeah, yeah. I just it's just that it seems so weird because I am British, but it's just <laughs> that British kind of now, now. Don't worry, we'll get you through this game. It really drives me crazy. Whereas you compare that to something like Bastion, the narration yeah. in that game, that that mm. narration just completely wraps me up in the story and and just goes yep okay i'm i'm on board for this whereas yeah i just i just i wasn't sold on the stylistic choice here how did you feel about the narration within the stanley parable because that's meant to be a little bit more actually condescending as like a matter of uh of writing choice and uh you know to an even greater extent gladys within portal is uh meant to be extremely condescending yeah I think GLaDOS really works for me because I just think the writing's so much stronger mm. um, in Portal yeah. and Portal 2. Um, and uh, just the voice work for GLaDOS is amazing. And also GLaDOS is an antagonist. And I kind of... it. And you, you know, you just have certain expectations of certain character roles where you're not bothered by those traits in you know an antagonist where it does bother you in a kind of passive narration you know narrator role um uh but um in the stanley parable um because it was played up and exaggerated for laughs it didn't bother me there and and also to to be honest, that's another example where I think the writing is stronger. I think the comedy writing's really strong in the Stanley Parable, mm-hmm. and I think even though you're absolutely right, stylistically they're very similar in terms of you know what they're trying to do. I I just think it comes down to writing for me, and um, the the writing in that game is a lot better. Well, see, I I always look at. Um any of the, the games that I play, if I'm the, you know, focus on one point, I always like to, you know, look at the other side, like what would this game feel like without that narration over the top of it? You know, would we pers- still be presented with just text on screen? Would it be as engaging if that was the case? You know, would you even bother to read it? Would you understand the story? Um, and I, you know, I think overall that, you know, be, be it Danny Wallace or be it anyone, I think stylistically I like the, the, the choice of you know, presenting the story the way they did to the character. At times it was it was funny. Um you know, I know, you know, like at the very start, like just jumping down and you know and him going wee and it's kinda of, there's there's some charm to be had in there. And um I you know, I can talk about other people in the room. You know, my wife Liz was sitting there watching me play it and you know, it was, you know, daggers at dawn if I dared to even enter one of those portals and not let the story play out that, you know, she was engaged, not necessarily from a mechanical point of view because she was sitting the other side of the room engaged in something else but this you know every time that danny wallace came on and a part of the story was rest read she you know instantaneously perked up out out of the book that she was reading to kind of engage with you know the further dialogue that was happening within the game and i, I know in particular she she really engaged with with that um even if it wasn't engaging with the game so um you know i, I definitely think it was something that that needed to be there I think, unfortunately, if you don't particularly like the way it was presented, then it actually has that negative effect that it probably just turns you off. But I guess there's an option to turn it off in the voiceover in the settings, possibly. But it's not something I would have uh, wanted to do. Yeah, I mean, even even though I've criticised it quite a lot on this podcast, um, I wouldn't turn it off. It just because... 
so much of the strength of the game is these character relationships and you need that you need that narration to to have that and uh yeah you, I, you do need narration for this game to work i just i wasn't a fan of the style yeah, interesting and then this i don't think this is something that we've necessarily even put down on notes to talk about but i'm you know i'm looking forward to actually using this game um even as a a tool to teach my children about you know basic character um, traits and, and yeah, movements yeah. of you know um, squares and, and rectangles and triangles, you know, building personality into these these little shapes and, and you know really teaching them that they're only you know two and a half, so you know we're we're learning what circles etc et are. But uh, I'm actually suddenly in the next um, you know six months or so actually going to use this as a, a kind of somewhat of an educational tool. Certainly at the very start to kind of you know have personalities towards these kind of inanimate objects. Um, I know this is something you know I've had on previous other podcasts. You know, people have talked, I've heard people talk about um, you know using this this game as an educational tool because it's short enough and you know in some respects easy enough for younger children, certainly in the early areas, to kind of sit there and engage with and understand the basic mechanics of of gameplay. Even for mature gamers, it, it can seem a bit rudimentary. I, I do actually appreciate that this will be one of those first games. I think I'll introduce my children to to understand the actual bare mechanics of what games can be. Yeah. No, I absolutely agree with you. I And, and I think it is, like, for, especially for kids, and, and just because the tone mm. of the the story is kind of like a, a child storybook, it would be a good way of teaching kids about relationships and how strengths and we- uh, you know strengths and weaknesses can bounce off of each other and people can benefit each other and teamwork and what have you no yeah i i can totally see that okay so the the final uh thing we need to talk about is the dlc benjamin's flight um i unfortunately have not played this dlc but uh i know um the other members of this podcast have I think it's a little strange how they introduce this DLC in that uh, you can play through the entire game, get to the end credits, and not really know that it's even there. It's not unless you uh, go into the chapters menu Mm. and say, oh, it looks like I have two chapters that are not done yet. And, uh, you know, that's how I found it. I just kind of stumbled across it like, oh, I didn't know that this existed. Which platform did you play on? Um, I I played on PC. Yeah, was it there from the very start? I'm not sure it was... It was late. I don't. I think I don't it was think paid it was. DLC for the PlayStation mm. as and when it came out. So I mean, yeah, that's probably why it was just kind of bolted on, and they assumed that you'd play. I mean, for the for later platforms like I like me, the Xbox One, it was just all built into the the title. You didn't have to pay anything extra. It's just there. So probably easy. A lot of people probably don't even know that they have it. Um, <laughs> but it, it's worth going back to. I'd say it's a uh, kind of a uh, broad retelling of the uh, the Icarus story. In that you are a little square named Benjamin who goes out hiking with his father and uh, and gazes enviously upon this beautiful fountain of um, fountain of knowledge that the entire game uh, that the previous non DLC game was uh, was kind of revolving around and you you desire so much to touch it and so your your father builds you a jetpack. But before it's finished, you decide to take it for a spin and, uh, you know, make your own way up to the to the fountain of knowledge. And it ends up blinding him, which is kind of like uh, Icarus uh, wings melting and injuring him or killing him. I don't remember how that story ended out. Um, 
but it also serves to provide the backstory of uh, of Sarah, I believe that is the name that I'm remembering correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, right, right, and the double jumper. Um, and in this one, she plays a uh, kind of like a fangirl to uh, to Benjamin. She's a big fan of his jetpack because it's it's kind of cool. I don't know, um, and she's never seen anything like it. And it. I mean, it's interesting, like it kind of subverts her character and kind of turns her character on its head. And so instead of, you know, we met uh, Sarah in the the base game as this like lone adventurer, this this big, brave, double jumping rectangle who, you know, has this very like old world sensibility to her. And uh, um, and in fact, it looks like in this one, like all of that is an act that she put on because she's imitating Benjamin, who was the more adventurous one to begin with. And she's just kind of a fan and wants to emulate him, which I don't know if that makes her character more or less interesting, but it's uh, it adds a different dimension anyways. Well, it's interesting knowing that and, and against the main game anyway. Um because essentially she doesn't get to touch the the light it was it's thomas in the end isn't it that right at the very right, right at the very end when she's literally one wall away and thomas is the one that ascends and yeah her story out there is that then she understands uh really what the the idea was it wasn't about you know her getting there it was about a collective of people getting there and, and moving the, the program forward um yeah i enjoyed the dlc like i say it, it's one of those ones where they obviously looked at not not necessarily criticism, but looked at the people saying, "Yeah, I, I wonder what this game would feel like if it was harder," and took the ball and run with it. Um, it's not stupidly; it's not me, super meatball hard, hard by any stretch of the imagination. But there is some certainly some more difficult jumps, some more you know lateral thinking um, that is required to to push through it. And like I said, after getting to the the back end of it, I. I kind of felt like I'm glad the game wasn't like this. I, I, I yeah, it's it's challenging enough for sure, but I'm glad it was just yeah you know, a couple of sets of you know was it ten levels each I think somewhere around that, um, yeah. and and was no more. Yeah, the jetpack adds a kind of interesting dimension. It controls a little bit like uh, like the jetpack you would find in like Jetpack Joyride or something like that, where you're either, you know, thrusting upwards or falling. And so sometimes you have to navigate some uh, rather narrow and deadly, um, I guess, chasms or whatever, kind of Flappy Bird style. But um, yeah, other than that, it's uh, yeah, fairly straightforward. But, uh, you know, Jetpack was, was new, not brilliant, but it was, uh, it mixed it up a bit. Okay, let's move on to our community correspondence. Um, as always, uh, you can leave your feedback on the Cane and Rinse forum, which is com slash forum, or you can email us at podcast at com. So this uh, first bit of feedback is from Alex79UK, and he says... It was around the time this game was released I started getting really interested in the indie scene. Big budget releases had lost their appeal somewhat and there seemed to be a much more diverse and varied load of games coming out from small independent developers. I honestly can't remember whether I bought the game or got it on PS Plus but it was either worth every penny or an excellent freebie. 
I loved the game from the moment I started it. Danny Wallace did an excellent job of narrating Mike Biffle's script, giving real personality to an otherwise random collection of shapes. I know a lot of people have a bit of an issue with Danny Wallace, but I am quite a fan of his work, whether it's his voice acting, his television shows, or his books. The game had a real sense of deepness and story that betrayed its simple gameplay. Simple, but perfect gameplay. I finished it in a couple of sittings, and I have recently replayed it with the director's commentary on. An absolutely fantastic feature, and one I'd really like to see more more of in games. Mike gave real insight into the creation process and seems a thoroughly nice chap. I really enjoyed discovering all the shapes and what their special skills were. And the truly excellent soundtrack served to raise moments of puzzle-solving goodness to states of downright euphoria. The soundtrack, incidentally, has remained on my iPod since release day, and along with Braid, has to be one of my favourite game soundtracks ever. I... I rarely buy DLC, but I got the Benjamin's Flight Pack for Thomas Was Alone. I just wanted Mike to have some more money, and it was another set of fine levels. The game may have been relatively short, but it packed everything it needed to in that time. A really enjoyable experience, and I look forward to what the developer comes up with next. I think his game's out this week, isn't it? Yeah, uh, well, Volume came out uh, a couple of weeks ago, didn't it? Uh, just, yeah. just on that point, I, I just want to talk about Mike Biffle for a second here. He's, um, he's one of those people that I think, um, once again, a bit of a love-hate relationship with people on the internet. He, he's one of the, the, the indie developers that have dared to actually put his head above the parapet and talk... Uh, to the community um, or on podcasts etc and I think he's always come across as a smart and intelligent man and there seems to be a, a bit of a, an atmosphere out there that well he's made only made one game you know it was a, a good game but what does he know um, kind of from the internet click that, that get on people's cases like that um, and uh, yeah I, I don't think there's you know, listening to the director's commentary it, it, it comes across as a a man that was you know, wanted to 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 make a game of his own to get out the system. Um, yeah. That that's once you know should be applauded. And um, you know, listening to him talk about each individual section of each level, I mean, every level he talks in depth about what his aim was. Um, you know, different idiosyncrasies that you would never pick up, such as you know a part of a another level bleeding into the level that you can actually see down the right hand side. Spent two weeks trying to code this bit that nobody would ever see you'd have to look look i had to look really hard to even see what he was talking about uh, and spend two weeks of code to actually try to fix it stuff like that and i i find it fascinating whenever these directors commentaries make their way onto a game like this and to hear the development and actually what you take as a oh yeah this is just a platforming level and, and hear how you know they, they moved one jump to two millimeters because people were just you know, catching the bottom of the you know, rectangle on the bottom and it would send them to the bottom and etc etc so I think you know it's a short game if, if you haven't listened to the director's commentary and you are interested about you know just game development as a general whole wholeness then um, something like this is really worth, well worth checking out and he, he sells the whole kind of terror of making a game on your own 
um, so very mm. well, but also the actual, you know, the reward and the love that comes out the back half half of it. So, just wanted to say my piece. I think, yeah, you know, he's somewhat of a hard done by you know, guy that's just you know sticks his head up there and, and is willing to actually talk. Um, how dare he? Hey, I, I, I mean, I'll be honest, Tony. I'm, I'm really surprised to hear you say that um, people have, you know take mm-hmm. an issue with him because he's never he's never come off as anything other than a really pleasant uh guy on twitter and on social media and all of the panels uh i've seen him talk on um i mean i i know i've been the most critical probably of of this game but i have no issue with mike biffle i think I'll, the the things he contributes to the general conversation around game design and uh and the direction uh games are going it has been extremely positive and uh, having someone be that open and honest about the process the process and how much it's killed him <laughs> or otherwise is is a really positive thing to yet, get out there no no I, <laughs> I i i don't even have a problem with phil fish but that's, that's, a different a, that's another podcast <laughs> yeah um Right, uh, Ryan, could you read out uh, Neckymancer's piece, please? Yes, Neckymancer from the forum says, Let me first state that I'm absolutely not a platformer fan. It's just not my thing. Prior to playing this one, I can't remember the last platformer I actually played through or even really enjoyed. That said, I adore Thomas Was Alone. The gameplay was very simple, very little challenge to be found in the game. However, I feel that the gameplay was meant to be more of a conduit for the storytelling than anything else. And that was done tremendously well. And that was done tremendously well. Love the music. The narration was spot on, and I never felt like I had to push myself to play the game to see the story. I wanted to play the game. And, as I mentioned, that is incredibly unusual for me in this genre. It might be overrated, but it's still a great little game. I would actually not recommend this game to people who are big platformer game fans, at least not immediately. A platformer fan may enjoy this game for all the reasons that I and others have listed, but they might also not get into Thomas' simplicity because it just doesn't really stand out as a platformer. It's not especially fast or precise or punishing or score attacky. It's almost a word. <laughs> like so many other popular and excellent platformer games are, someone who's drawn to things like V's or Super Meat Boy might not appreciate the game, and that's okay. Thomas's Alone is a story, and a wonderful story, told with gameplay, narration, and emotion. Okay, Tony. JB, the skater. This was one of those games I sort of happened upon. I hadn't been playing too much attention to games coming out on the Vita as I was playing through Castlevania Symphony of the Night for the umpteenth time. I saw this on the new releases, was intrigued by the title and synopsis, so I thought I'd give it a go. I have to say I found it a really enjoyable and relaxing game, and unapologetically a game which adds to its charm. It never stressed me out or frustrated me. I played it through to absolute completion and pretty much enjoyed every moment. I wouldn't say it was a particularly challenging game, but then it doesn't appear to have been the intention. It is well designed, easy on the eye, and the soundtrack voiceover work is unobtrusive. It's a light-hearted, easy-going game. It's just a nice game. I think that's what word was uh, succinctly sum up all my feelings on it. Right, so Gallo Pinto says, I first played Thomas Was Alone on my old MacBook because it looked like a game my laptop <laughs> would finally be able to run. I played through it in one night, and like most people, 
I was blown away by how effective the writing, narration and music were in helping me relate to the different coloured shapes. My favourite part of the game was how, with only a few lines of dialogue for each shape, there was still character development for everyone. Chris starts as a grumpy cynic and is transformed by love. Claire feels terrible about herself, discovers she can swim, and gets a welcome self-esteem boost. James starts as a bullied loner and gradually integrates into the group. Again, all of this happens in less than 10 sentences per character, but it works flawlessly. I replayed the game again recently on Vita, and while I still love the game, I don't think it really warrants a second playthrough. I think other two to four hour games like Journey, Brothers, or Gone Home have more to say on their second or third or fourth playthrough than Thomas Was Alone. I think it's great at what it does, but you fully enjoy the writing and music the first time you play it, and the actual gameplay is pretty simple. Not really a knock at the game, but I would recommend that you play it the one time and let that memory stay pure. Thank you very much to all of our uh, contributors there. Right, let's move on to our free word reviews. Alex79 UK, Thomas wasn't alone. Neki Mansa says, more than shapes. Patrick Smith, cuboids and feelings. Galeo Pinto, team jump, assemble. Matt Wetter says, graphics aren't everything. And Catatonic Nali, bizarre, poignant, charming. Okay, thank you very much. And of course, if you want to contribute free word reviews, um, pay attention to our Twitter feed at Canaan Rince. Uh, we'll ask you for free word reviews when we're about to record a show. All that's left now is our summaries. So I'd like to start with Tony. So this is a game of mixed emotions for me. Um, I think on the face of it, and this will, I, I think we're all come to the same conclusion summary here, is that I think gameplay-wise, I don't think it's anything to particularly write home about. I think it's adequate at best, um, or kind of a bit dull at worst. But that's not... I, I think that's probably why I came to this game, but that's not what I ended up taking out of this game. Um Unlike, um, you know, I've, I've played stuff like Tearaway and, and even Brothers to a degree, where some of those, you know, story elements, etc., or, you know, bed, you know, stripped down mechanics haven't really spoken to me. Um, I didn't expect Thomas Alone to do this because first time through, I was a bit nonplussed by the whole experience. I thought, OK, interesting story. I like, I like the, you know, Danny's Wallace commentary. But I'm I'm not entirely sold on on maybe what uh, Mike Biffle was was trying to present here, and I would disagree. I I went through a further two times, and that's when I started to dig, maybe start to understand the characters, start to see a more fully formed story arc to each char- each and every character, understand you know their feelings and emotions, understanding the way that your know, platforms and arenas were laid out to tell their story, and I I really appreciate the you know the stripped down minus look of you know creating squares with emotions and i think there's a comp- level of complexity that is greater than most 
not all, but greater than a lot of full-blown AAA big-budget games where I feel like I'm just a an avatar walking through an environment. Just, yep, I've done this a billion times. And there was something about Thomas Alone that was more than that to me. There was something that got under my skin, something where I was like, I don't know, why, why am I fully engaged in, essentially, squares and rect- rectangles? And, you know, I think that has to be a combination of both interest in storytelling, um, interest in writing, and interest in voiceover work. I can see why some people it would be a bit of a, a buffer if any of one of those things is something that you don't engage with. I can see they could actually push you away from the title. But it, the second time and third time through, it's something that I, I did engage with, something I, I truly started to really dig. And, um, you know, I'm not going to say it's, you know, it's one of my all time favorites, but it, it's certainly one of those indie games that did actually speak to me. Um, and I think we all have those in our, our back catalogue, which is interesting because I, I definitely feel the first time through I was a bit nonplussed by the whole thing. So you know, I, I have to disagree. I think this is something that if you listen to this podcast, maybe you already have a greater understanding of what the story arcs and stuff if you haven't played the game and would have a deeper knowledge going in the first time round. So as a game, I don't think it's particularly interesting, but as an experience, I think it's actually one that is fully worth worthy of the praise and the success that has uh, been granted Mark Biffle from this, and for him to push himself now as a a truly uh, game developer that can not just pick his project, but you know Sony obviously you know publishing his next title, etc. Um, so I I I'll look forward to following his work in the future. Uh, I have to say as well for me the the score the soundtrack we haven't talked huge about it but one of my favorite uh you know one of my all-time favorite is one of the ones I have on my playlist that it's uh, it can really get under your skin so top marks for me. I really really enjoyed it. I like everything that Thomas was uh Thomas was alone is trying to do and I, I'm really glad this game exists, not only because I think it does some interesting things with interactivity and trying to use that to convey relationships between characters, but also just bringing Mike Biffle to the, you know, the, the gaming yeah. community sphere and, and allowing him to talk openly and honestly. I think he is a great asset, uh, asset to the to the industry um i just for whatever reason nothing about this game broke through that ceiling that turned it into you know a special mm-hmm. game i i and 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 some in some ways this is a bad thing to do and and i know leon <laughs> gives me a hard time every time i do this but it it's really hard not to compare it to other games in the genre that do certain things better than this um the you know the aesthetic is really nice but I, I, it's hard not to compare it to something like fez where the just the visuals in that game and the music in that game are just breathtaking and then you have the gameplay which is fine it, there's nothing bad about it there's nothing frustrating about it but then you compare it to something like super meat boy um uh shovel knight like just the, the 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 level design and just the originality and the approach to that kind of stuff it's just not there for me so while i really do think this is a game people should play i think everyone should give this game a go just to see what it has to offer it just it doesn't break through into you know like my all-time favorite 
you know games or what have you it's just for me it's a curiosity and not much more than that thomas was alone i've been a little mixed or negative throughout the issue and that's not because i dislike the game but it's because i like the game so much that i want to push it to be better than it is you know like this is a game and this is a developer um that i have so much faith in and i I think that the idea is there everything is in the right place it just needs a little bit of refinement and i think that in the future mike biffle can make that jump because um he seems like a really excellent designer and um there's a lot of good things that thomas's alone has going for it that i think can be refined and can be perfected and make a truly stunning game. And I think that Thomas was alone should be, you know, pretty much required playing for anyone who's interested in storytelling and video games, who's interested in using mechanics to tell games. Um, I think as a game, I would actually give it a little bit more credit than Tony has. In that, um, <laughs> I think that it, it is like a, a, it feels good to play. And I think that aspects of the platforming, even though the level design is a little, uh, little uninteresting at times and uh visually it lacks the the flourish of something like a raymond legends but uh i I think that the gravity feels better than classic mario games actually um i think that the the momentum and the (laughs) jumping arcs controversial thing to say (laughs) (laughs) you'll get emails (laughs) (laughs) regardless like i think that aspects of the platforming do feel very good with the controller in your hands and, um, you know, I'm not going to say that that's enough to really propel it into something that's super memorable as a purely mechanical experience, but it's, um, you know, it, it certainly, it, it doesn't drag the rest of the experience down like a lot of, uh, game mechanics in more narrative focused games can, um, to certain players. Um, overall it's, uh, it, it's a nice package. It's a, it's a lovely game that could have been something better than it is, but for what it is, it is still pretty exceptional. Um, I, I think narratively, it, there's a few little niggles here and there that I have with the game, but uh, but overall, I'm still very glad that I've experienced it and um, would recommend it to anybody who's still curious and would like to give it a spin because it's quite unlike anything you're likely to play in uh, in that 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 platformer space cool that just leaves me uh josh to thank tony and ryan for joining me uh talking about thomas was alone and next time in issue 195 we're traveling through another dimension a dimension not only of sight and sound but of mind a journey into a wondrous land of imagination next stop the comic zone or just comic zone see you next time